0: Brilliant. Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you part of King's Church. And if you're new, visiting, new to church, uh, we're really, really glad that you're here. I hope you feel at home as part of this Community. I thought Abby talked about those evening services that we're going to have in a really helpful way because they are exciting things for us to try something different. Um, The reason that we're having them is kind of driven by the fact that we can't be in here in the morning, just so you wonder why we're not just kind of throwing out random evening services. It is driven by something, but we see it as a good opportunity to try something new, five o'clock evening services, and it'll be fun. Something else I wanted to draw to your attention before we get into this morning's uh, Bible is a date for your diary, uh, Friday the 2nd of June. Uh, every year, I say every year, we did it last year for the first year, so I call it every year, uh, <laughs> we're having a vision and community night. We had a great time last year, we had great food together at uh, Reed School. This year we're going to be here in the cafe space and it's just what it says in not tin, really, it's a chance for us as members of the church to gather together, to enjoy each other's company, to build community and also to hear something about where we've come from, reflect on the year that we've had and look ahead to the year that we believe God's calling us to. So it's a vision and community night. It's for members of the church. If you're not yet member of the church, but you're interested in being so, we'd love to chat to you. Chat to me, your life group leader, your friend, Rachel at the Connect Point, and we can help you get into that process. But the key thing is, date for the diary, Friday, 2nd of June, evening, cafe space. It's going to be a really, really good night. So, we're at the beginning of a new teaching series. It's called Vital Signs Indications of a Healthy Heart. I like starting a new series, it's uh, an exciting new thing. And really, the big idea behind this series is this To assess the health of a physical human heart, there are a number of kind of uh, vital signs. That I'm reliably informed by my medical expert practitioner, um, that medical expert practitioners look for when assessing the uh, health of a human heart. They look for things like the structure. They want to know that the components are all in good working order to know whether the heart's in good working order. They want to know something, they want to know about the cardiac output. They want to know whether the heart is pumping bod- blood around the body effectively. They want to know about the rhythm of the heart as to whether it's beating in the right way so it can send the electrical impulses out to the muscles around it. All kinds of vital signs that they use to assess whether a physical heart is healthy. And so it is with our, with our souls, with our spiritual hearts. There are all kinds of vital signs that we can assess to see whether the spiritual heart, the soul, is healthy. And we're going to look at all kinds of vital signs through this series, things that should tell us how this heart of ours as Christians is. That's the kind of basic idea behind it. So we're going to look at things like, as Christians, how do we engage in reading with the Bible? How generous are we with our money? Uh, do we have compassion and love for those from different nations? How do we use our words, both verbally and online, all kinds of indications as to whether the heart is healthy. Next week, we'll have Clark Bass, who's a pastor at Kingsgate Church, and he'll be looking at the whole issue of prayer. These are all things that tell us something about whether this heart of ours is healthy. Now, there are dangers in a series like this, especially for Christians. And one of the dangers is that we can, we can have a mindset sometimes that, would, that says these things are kind of they're kind of duties, they're things that Christians ought to be doing. And if that's our mindset, if they're oughts, if they're shoulds, then the danger is that if we're doing quite well, whatever that means, we can feel a bit prideful. And if we're not doing so well at these things, whatever that means, we can kind of feel a little bit of shame, a bit of despair either. It's a bit of a trap that we need to be aware of. For other people, the trap may be a bit different. Because you can feel kind of a different challenge. You can feel maybe a bit wary of any sense of prescriptiveness. Hang on a minute. Are you going to be telling me things that I should be doing as a Christian? I've heard the language of spiritual disciplines. That sounds a bit prescriptive to me. Bottom line, God loves me anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Different ones of us can feel different ways about a series like this. And the way to avoid those traps, I would say, is to remember this. This bottom line is, as you've been hearing this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that through Jesus Christ, you are utterly loved. Full stop. Period. And that will not change depending on how you do with these various things. That's the bottom line. So if you ever feel yourself sort of hitting that slight kind of, oh, I'm not doing well, go back to the gospel. The gospel tells me that Jesus has done all that needs to be done for me to revel in the love and the approval of God. And nothing I don't do detracts from that, and nothing I do do somehow adds to that. Really important that we remember that. And equally, remember that the, the reality of the, of the gospel tells us that because of that, what Jesus has done, we've been given a new heart, the Bible tells us. God says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, talking about what he will do through Jesus, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Meaning, by having a new heart, we're going to be able to do things we couldn't do before. Please God, love God, uh, enjoy God. And what we want to do in this series is try and ensure that we can live a full life, that we can have a heart that is healthy, that means that the new heart we've been given is a healthy one, that means life is full and has abundance. That's the heart behind, no pun intended, the heart behind this series is to ensure that we've got a bunch of people here who are either exploring what it might mean to be a Christian or either are a Christian and are developing an increasingly healthy heart because they've been given the new one through Jesus Christ. That's the aim behind all of this. So, let's look at the first vital sign this morning. Let me help you to see what the first vital sign is this morning. In a second, uh, I'm going to ask Adam to put a photo up. And when the photo comes up, I want you to turn to the person next to you. I'm nicking this idea from Chris Kandai of the week. You can tell if you were here a few weeks ago. Get us talking. I'm always keen to nick ideas. As soon as the photo comes up, turn to the person next to you and tell that person what you think the person in the photograph is experiencing. Yeah. So, three, two, one. Adam, photo, please. Good old Mary Berry. Turn to the person next to you. What is the feeling she is experiencing? Twenty seconds. Go. Three, two, one. Okay, and back in the room. Couple of ideas, please. Who's brave enough to shout out? What is the emotion that you think Mary Berry is experiencing? Somebody. Joy is one. Anybody else? Excitement. Excitement. Horror, horror. Horror. (laughs) If she had seen my banana cake at Ashburnham (laughs) two years ago, she would indeed have experienced horror. If you want any reason to come to Ashburnham this year, come to Ashburnham, I will bake again. And that is a good reason to come because you will probably have to eat the brick that was my banana cake. (laughs) Anything else that you might be experiencing? One more word. Pardon? Surprise. Surprise. Okay, interesting. All could be going on. Next uh, photo, please, Adam. Very different. Very different image. A bit more visceral, perhaps. A bit more visceral. Uh, the, the artist who um, took this photograph, he entitled it Pure, Utter Joy. That's the title that he put with this photograph. Very, very different image, perhaps. Very different type of joy. I guess for her, all of the pain, or most of the pain, perhaps, is over, he says, speculating on this, uh, <laughs> on this whole thing. The relief and the delight and the overwhelming wonder at new life Pure, utter joy is probably a good uh, description, isn't it, by the artist. And then just one more, please, Adam, one more photo. Again, very different. If I had entitled this photograph, I would have entitled it Pure, Utter Joy. I had an image. This is not me on my honeymoon, but it's quite similar. We, had, we were lucky to have a nice beach on our honeymoon. Um, I didn't wear a suit, obviously, um, <laughs> on the beach. But I did do a lot of that uh, with a cold beer. that was regularly brought to me, and it was pure, utter joy. <laughs> joy is, uh, can be experienced in all kinds of different ways. We experience or encounter joy in all kinds of different places. Maybe you could do the next slide, Adam. Thank you. We can experience joy in the delight at someone creating something beautiful, like Mary Berry, I think experienced I think it was joy, not horror. We can experience joy uh, in the wonder of a uh, new birth arriving into the world. Or in being able to totally relax, any of those ways, and many, many others, we experience joy. It's a deep, deep thing, and it's the first vital sign of this series. The first vital sign of a healthy heart is the joy that we live with, that we experience, that we encounter. Now, how we define joy is obviously pretty important. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but let's just say, for the moment, there's a if you, in your mind's eye, have a spectrum of joy. Let's say naught is none. And 10 is pure, utter joy, to steal that phrase. Whether you are a Christian or not, depending on how you define joy, that's up to you for the moment, where would you put yourself at the moment on that spectrum? Nought being none, 10 being pure and utter. If you had to mark an X on the joy spectrum, where would it go at the moment? (laughs) And to be honest with you, I find this vital sign a real challenge. I didn't want to start with this one, uh, but Carly, who's on staff with us in the church office, she, I think quite rightly, provoked me to start with this one, because it really is key. I found it hard. Often I don't feel like I am living in, enjoying, or exhibiting the joy that seems to be on offer through Jesus Christ. I find it hard. But I'm telling you this, through Going through some of the preparation for this series and for this talk, I really feel like God's done something in me. And so as a result, that gives me faith and it gives me confidence that he's going to do something in you this morning. Depending on where your X is, whether it's nine and three quarters or it's 0.1, I believe there is an increase in joy to take place for you this morning. I've experienced that and I believe you're going to experience the same thing. You see, Jesus Christ said... That he came so that our joy may be full. That's what he claimed. That's what he promised. Not some temporary happiness. He didn't say, I come so that you might have fleeting moments of pleasure. The odd moments of happiness. He said, I've come that your joy may be full. So let's press into that together. Let's press into what he meant. In the Gospel of John, Jesus had a long conversation. John records it over chapters 13 to 17. I want to read to you four excerpts from that conversation, uh, starting with John chapter 15 and verse 9. And the words will appear on the screen behind me. Jesus is speaking the night before his death to his disciples. And he said this to them, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy, sorry, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he goes on to say in chapter 16, verse one, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then a little later, the disciples start to have a conversation amongst themselves. They get really confused about what Jesus is predicting about his death and his resurrection. And so in answer to that little conversation, Jesus uh, goes on to say this. We'll pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 16. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you. You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And we saw an image, I think, portraying exactly what Jesus meant just now. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you until now. You have asked nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then finally, he concludes by saying in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What do we learn about joy from what Jesus is teaching us? I think there are four things, four steps, if you like. We're going to see that joy, there is a joy that is vulnerable. There is also a joy that is indestructible. There is a joy that can coexist with sorrow, even. And there's a secret a joy. So First of all, there is a joy that is vulnerable. Uh, I probably watch too much sport, I think it's fair to say, but because I watch a lot of sport, I see a lot of sportsmen and sportswomen uh, giving interviews about their successes. and It always intrigues me how many of them, or a number of them, on winning a medal or a competition or something, will often say something like, I won that, I did that, and no one can take that away from me. Have you ever heard that phrase used? Sports people often tend to use it, but others, others do as well. No one can take it away from me. And I often think, who, who, who's going to take it away from you? As far as I'm aware, there not there aren't people going around trying to expunge sporting records from the internet or stealing gold medals. I don't think anyone's going to take your achievement or your medal or your competition victory away from you. So where does that come from? Where does that phrase come from, I wonder? But I think it does reveal something quite deep about the human psyche, something that I think we probably all know to be true, which is this. Joy can be hard to keep hold of. It's vulnerable in that sense. Something in us, even in a joyful, victorious, successful, confident sports person, knows you kind of have to cling on to joy. It can, it can escape. It's vulnerable in that sense. Why is that? Why is that kind of joy vulnerable? Because most of the joy that the modern world offers us, even the best things that we've seen on the photographs and even things that I'm referring to here in terms of sporting victories, they're all threatened by circumstances. They're all vulnerable in that sense. You see, if your deepest hopes for joy are in things that are circumstantial, and that could be anything, whether it's our deepest hopes for joy in the career that we want, or in having physical health, or beauty, or in a comfortable lifestyle, or in finding a spouse, or in having a great marriage, or in getting into the college or the university that we've set our heart on. If our ultimate hope for joy is in those things, those things are circumstantial and therefore they're vulnerable, because they can change. We could not get them and if we do get them, they can shift and change. None of those things can be guaranteed and therefore joy is vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't experience great joy in an exciting new promotion or in our kids succeeding at school or in getting married. Of course not. That's why we all smiled, I think, when we saw those images because it's totally appropriate and natural to experience joy when we see others experiencing joy or joyful images. We want to celebrate those things, of course. But, and this is the the key point, if those things that I've been listing, if they are more than causes of joy, In other words, if they're more than, as Christians at least, if they're more than reasons to see the goodness and the grace of God at work and to give him thanks. So if they're more than causes of joy, if they are instead the ultimate source of our hope for joy, then joy is a vulnerable commodity. Yeah? Because if those things are threatened or taken away, and we can't, let's be honest, we can't guarantee any of them won't be, then suddenly the joy in them becomes vulnerable and can be eaten up by sorrow. But number two, there is a joy that is indestructible. There is a joy that is indestructible because Jesus is making an extraordinary promise. Did he catch it? In verse 22 of chapter 16, he said, almost speaking to the perhaps the sports people of 21st century, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. That is a big claim. No one will take your joy from you. And the reason he can make that claim, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him here, is because he can say to his disciples in advance and to us since, I will or I have conquered sin and death and I've come back to life again. And therefore, if your joy is in me, given that I am indestructible, I've come back to life again. If your joy is in me, you can have a joy that is indestructible. If you seek your joy in me, then you can know a joy that cannot be swallowed up by circumstances because I cannot be swallowed up by circumstances. It's like he's saying, I've demonstrated my love for you on the cross. I've proved my victory and power by rising from life to death. So therefore, my promises, my love, my presence, my glory, my faithfulness, my trustworthiness, those things are without doubt. They are indestructible. And that's what gives you an indestructible joy. That's his claim. It's a big claim. Number three, there is a joy that can coexist with sorrow. There's a joy that can coexist with sorrow. And at this point, I want to kind of make something clear. Let's use the next image, Adam, if you if you wouldn't mind to explain what I mean. Sometimes I think either as Christians or as people watching on. Towards Christians, we can kind of think like: to be a joyful Christian means that when sorrow comes along, we kind of just sort of block it out. And you have to sort of to maintain joy, you have to put your fingers in the ears and say, "La la la la! I can't hear you! No, no, no sorrow, no tragedy, no grief! I'm just being a joyful Christian." That can sometimes be at least the perception of Christians, and maybe if we feel that like we have to maintain our joy, it can even be our experience as Christians. And that's not what Jesus means. He's not inviting us into something which involves blind faith. He's not inviting us into something that involves like being delusional and having to put aside the reality of life. It's not what a relationship with Jesus Christ is about. Jesus is really honest. Really honest. He tells us in advance that the Christian life is far from trouble free. You may have caught it when I was reading those passages. What did he say in chapter 15 and verse 2 to his disciples? People are going to throw you out of synagogues and try and kill you. He made that pretty clear at the end of the passage. In chapter 16 and verse 33, he said to them, you will have tribulation in this world. He's being as clear as he can. He's very honest about the sorrow that will accompany being, not just having life, but specifically being a Christian in life. He knows that somebody who is willing, Not to simply observe him from a distance, but to follow him, to walk alongside him on the Emmaus Road, as we heard last Sunday, to use his language to pick up their cross and follow him. That's somebody who is going to encounter and experience sorrow. And of course, sorrow can dampen our joy. Let's just be realistic about it. Of course it can. Who's known the disconnect between the joy that they know should come through what Jesus has done and being a Christian and then the reality of the sorrow or the trouble that you're in. It feels like there's a disconnect. Was it just me? You can like just wink very subtly though, so I know that I'm not the only one. Great. There can be that sense of a disconnect. The claim of Christianity, one of the claims of Christianity is that it provides a resource for life, a sense of joy, that though it might be threatened by sorrow, cannot be extinguished by it. And actually is able to coexist with it. I love uh, Lord of the Rings. I'm sure many of us have watched and read Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite childhood memories is of hiding under my duvet with my torch reading Lord of the Rings, hoping that my parents wouldn't bust me for staying up late. So I always prefer the books to the films. And one of the, um, it's a lovely passage that Tolkien writes in, in Lord of the Rings. And he's describing how Pippin, the character, is observing Gandalf. And it's clear that Pippin's aware that Gandalf has been through a lot of sorrow in his life. And he's aware that Gandalf is experiencing sorrows. A lot of bad things happening in the particular scene. Most of us know the stories. There's A lot of sorrow, a lot of sadness. And then suddenly Pippin says that Gandalf laughs amidst his sadness. And Tolkien writes this. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. For the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy. A fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Joy that exists underneath sorrow. You see, I I would say Christians arguably should be more acquainted with sorrow than anybody else if we genuinely are committed to being engaged in people's lives and all of the messiness that comes with it, if we forgive our enemies and those who've hurt us, if we commit to carrying burdens alongside and for each other, if we long for the gospel to be proclaimed far more wonderfully than it currently is, and for the kingdom of heaven to overlap earth more than it currently seems to do, if if those things characterize our life, just those things will mean that we live with a degree of sorrow. Jesus was described by Isaiah as being a man of sorrows. But Christian joy is something so deep that even though it might be almost submerged by sadness, as Pippin thought it was for Gandalf, Christian joy is something so deep that it will never go away. It cannot be extinguished. It's there underneath everything else. Christian joy goes down to the deepest recesses of the human heart and it keeps the heart healthy. Or it can. Now at this point, you might be thinking, sounds great. The theory sounds great. If you're not yet a Christian, you might be thinking, this sounds interesting. If there's something this deep, Many of us are Christians, you might think, well, I, I know the theory, Philip, I'm just not sure about the reality of this kind of deep, everlasting, inextinguishable joy. Let me just show you a short video, which I think will kind of put some reality into the theory. And it's a, it's a short five-minute video, um, and it tells the story of a woman called Helen from Eritrea. You might know as a, a um, country in Africa, which is extremely repressive, closed-state um and she just will talk us through uh and i think i want you to watch let her basically show you how deep and how indestructible christian joy is and how it can exist alongside sorrow can you roll the video there's an awful lot you could say about a video like that and um one of the things, obviously, that one could talk about with a video like that is, is how we as Christians feel about uh, those Christians around the world who suffer for their faith, and how we feel more broadly about the, uh, the commission of the Bible for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, every tribe and tongue and, and race and color and so forth. And to that end, later in this Vital Signs series, we'll have a couple called Pete and Sarah Benson, who are part of the New Ground family of churches that we're in and they're going to be uh, planting a new church in Berlin We'll be hearing about that a few weeks after that we'll have John Ford with us who's known to many of us who's a pastor here who moved his family out to to love the people of Istanbul and show the love of God to them and we'll hear from him so we'll kind of look at those those things of course a video like this does bring up but for the moment I want to focus on what Helen shows us about Christian joy and I don't know about you but when I watched that video Oh, a number of things came to my mind, but two in particular. The first was, how is that possible? <laughs> That's the first, I think, thought that I had. And the second was second one was, I I want that joy. So I was thinking on the one hand, I was thinking, how can how is that possible? How can you still experience such joy in God that you're writing worship songs and preaching the gospel and giving thanks to Him when you're being taught we doing exactly that? How is that possible? And the second thing, as I say, that I was thinking was, I, I want that. and I, want, I don't want what she went through, but I want that kind of indestructible joy. Don't you? That kind of joy that can exist alongside sorrow that isn't swallowed up by it. Joy that is not clearly, not founded on circumstances, but instead is ultimately founded on the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want that kind of joy. Don't you? And... This is where it gets really kind of mind-boggling, the nature of Christian joy. Do you see that the magnificence of Christian joy is such that when sorrows come, actually they can serve to push you further into your joy? Do you see that? She's going through the worst of things, but because her ultimate basis for joy is, in simple terms, the love of God for her in Jesus is in the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Because that's where her bottom hope for joy is, the sorrows, the appalling circumstances, what they actually serve to do is push her more into her joy. You see that? Nothing the modern world has to offer can offer that. There is nothing (laughs) that parallels that kind of joy. Everything the modern world offers says you can have joy here, but it's vulnerable because as soon as it's threatened or it goes, your joy gets swallowed up. This kind of joy is indestructible, and you actually somehow encounter more of it, the worse things get. That's the magnificence, or part of the magnificence of the gospel. This woman cannot help but sing and preach about him, even at the risk of her very life. She cannot help but make much of him. Why? Because before this happened, her ultimate source for joy was in Jesus. And so the worst of things pushed her further into that. That is remarkable. That makes the gospel unique. It makes Christianity unique. And I think it also tells us number four, where the true secret of joy lies. Ultimately, the true secret of joy does not lie in our hopes for joy in family, in career, in health, in beauty, and then asking Jesus to bless those things. We have a good father who loves to bless us. He loves to give us good things beyond our wildest dreams and we celebrate that when that happens. But the secret of indestructible joy, joy that can coexist alongside sorrow, is not putting our hope for joy in those things and asking God to bless them. Because when those things are threatened or taken away, the sorrow extinguishes the joy and if you're a Christian, you feel bitter towards Jesus that he didn't give you what you asked for. But if the bottom line, if the bottom of the joy, hope, is in Jesus, then there is something indestructible, unextinguishable, that the worst of things can exist alongside and can somehow even push you into. That is something I want. I want indestructible joy. I want deep joy. I want joy. I have not experienced a fraction of what she's been through. And yet so many times I find the joy being swallowed up by the circumstances. And Jesus Christ said, I came to give you joy and joy to the full. That's what he claimed. That's what he promised. And because he rose from death to life, we can trust his promises. Because he came back to life to award life fullness of life, we can trust his promises. God is not a kill toy. He's made us to desire it. Look around the world. The evidence is everywhere. We're desperate for joy. We're seeking it all the time in every possible place. We're making films like The Pursuit of Happiness. We've got countless universities now that now have something called happiness studies. That's something that you can devote your life to studying, to try and master, because we're built to want to find joy. God's not scratching his head, thinking, "Blimey, this!" Like human beings are a bit hungry for joy. C.S. Lewis put it very interestingly. He said, "We are far too easily pleased." By which he meant was the problem is not that human beings want joy too much, and God can't provide it. The problem is, he says, we're too easily pleased with the joy that the world offers us, and we don't push into the indestructible joy that Jesus Christ offers us." The problem isn't that we don't want joy. En- the problem isn't that we don't want joy enough. The problem isn't <laughs> that our desire for joy is too big. The problem is that our desire for joy is too small. You want joy? I do. You want this community to be characterized by deep, indestructible, inextinguishable joy the like of which makes people go what is that? I want that. How does that coexist alongside what you're going through? Tell me about this. Just dream for a moment if we were and we are in in parts but we dream for a moment if we were a community like that where we were truly joyful alongside some of the toughest of things where we celebrate the best of things and yet that that celebrating joy can still exist alongside the worst of things and somehow even push you into more joy that would mark us out that would make our friends and our family and our neighbors and our colleagues look at that like we look to helen and say how is that possible i want that and we say let me tell you it's possible place your hope for joy in Jesus Christ I would love us to be a community like that and I'm grateful for those of you who do exhibit that so wonderfully but a community like that is one people want to be around and want to be involved in and are intrigued and drawn into so I'm just going to ask us to stand if you will I want to pray for us and I will ask the banders also to come and Help us. And um, I used to be a bit scripted about these things and I'm trying to not be so. So just trying to wait on God as to how he would have us uh, respond. Lord God, we uh, we're so grateful that you're here with us. We're so grateful that you sent Jesus to bring joy to humanity. You sent Jesus to bring the fullness of joy to humanity, and you, through Jesus, gave us a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a stone one. And you want that heart to be healthy, to flourish. And our joyfulness has to be one of the indicators to whether that's the case. And so I ask you to draw us in to increasing love for you. Jesus, you said, abide in me, ask in my name, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So I want to ask in your name, the name of the victorious risen Lord Jesus Christ, for joy. <laughs> to characterize this wonderful community and for those that look in on it. I want to ask that we would experience this thing, that we would encounter it and know it and feel it more and more. The joy that comes from being drawn to the love of God. The joy that comes from walking with you, Jesus, abiding with you, seeing you leap off the pages of scripture, whispering to us in our times of prayer, using us to expand and extend your kingdom. I pray you make us a joyful community where we would abundantly celebrate the best of things as examples of your goodness and grace. And that when the worst of things come, They would only serve to push us in to your goodness and grace and find more joy.